Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Welcome to the last Sunday of June. We're halfway through 2020. It's been a great year, hasn't it? Looking forward to the second half. If you have a Bible, let's open it to James chapter 5. We're back in James chapter 5, back in our series through James. We've taken a little break, and we're going to finish out the fifth chapter. So much treasure in this last chapter of James for us. We're going to read verses 5, or chapter 5, 1 through 6, maybe a little bit at the end of 4. Our text, though, is verses 1 through 6 of James chapter 5. As you're finding that, Let me just orient us, remind us of the driving force behind James's letter. Really, there's there's two things that we need to remember just to kind of refresh as we get into this text. Is that the in James, I think there's really one overarching theological truth, and it is this this notion, this truth, this concept that that true saving faith, authentic, genuine faith, the only type of faith that actually saves a person must, will inevitably produce some measure of obedience in their life. It will produce some works, some fruit. And that's James's point, really. We, we look at, I think, the two sort of hallmark verses of James are James chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's one of the, the hot button verses, really the, the primary point of of discussion through the centuries is how does what James says there in verse 17, how does it blend with what Paul says in Romans and Galatians and what the rest of the Bible seems to say, that we're saved by faith alone and not by works? Is there a contradiction? And of course the answer is no, that James is not saying that we're saved by our works, but he's saying that the free gift of true saving faith that is given to us by God and is not a work if it is truly the type of faith that saves us, is going to necessarily be accompanied by obedience. He's looking at sanctification, the other half of our salvation. And the rest of the book of James is really a, a, a kind of uh, exploration of different examples of what this life should look like. So he says in the beginning, in James 1, he looks at trials and temptations. This is what the true Christian life will look like to varying degrees. James chapter 2, how you treat people. James chapter 3, all about your tongue, the things that come out of your mouth give evidence of your heart. James chapter 4, he talks about worldliness and how the true Christian must fight to resist the world and not be a friend of the world, but to be a friend of God. And then this morning, he's going to guide us in a discussion, really an exhortation of how we handle wealth and riches. So let me read chapter 4, starting in verse 13, through our text this morning, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, just to give us a little context. I think we should read the end 
of chapter 4 again. Verse 13 of James 4, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And, and as I was studying this passage, I'll read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 in a moment, but how providential that that was the last passage in James that we studied before the, the world turned upside down. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Amen? All right, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand and apply this passage to our lives. Lord, thank you for your word. Every word of the Lord is true. We thank you that you've preserved it through the centuries. You've translated it into our language. You've given it to us in a faithful translation that we can trust. We confess, along with our brothers and sisters through the centuries, that your word is without error, that it is sufficient. It's all we need for life and godliness, that it is authoritative. It, it carries with it your authority. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace, for the Holy Spirit that lives in your people to help us hear and heed this word and apply it to our lives. Lord, do the work of your word through your spirit in our lives this morning. And if there are any in this room that do not know you or that are listening via the live stream or later on, Lord, that do not know you, I pray that you would, would back them into a corner where they would finally let go of their own righteousness and that they would see and savor Jesus and that they would trust in you and not themselves, that you would give them the gift of faith in a new heart whereby they can do this. Lord, help us to think wisely and deeply and not leave this room unchanged. And Lord, help me. Help me communicate clearly. Help my tone. Help me to be helpful to my brothers and sisters. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take note of these two paragraphs that we've just read. The one at the end of chapter 4 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, 
It starts off with the same phrase, come now. And he's exhorting what seems to be Christian business people who are presuming upon the future. And then in verse 1 of chapter 5, he starts with the same words, come now, you rich. But what has been noted through many scholars and Christians through the centuries is that in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, as opposed to the rest of the letter, James is not actually in our text this morning addressing Christians. While he was in the rest of the letter at the end of chapter 4, it's an exhortation, maybe even a rebuke to presuming upon the future. It seems clear that he's still speaking to believers. But in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he transitions, and for the first time, really the only time in the letter, he seems to clearly be addressing unbelievers. So what are we to make of this? What's going on here? Well, The great John Calvin, in his thoughts on James, suggests two things that are going on in the mind of James as he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. The first, he says, is that what James is doing is he's speaking, he's in a sense, he's got a mind towards believers as he's speaking to unbelievers, and he's got two purposes here. One is to warn believers about the miseries that are coming upon the rich so that they won't desire the riches in a, in, a, in a sinful sort of way. And secondly, he's saying that he's speaking to the rich sort of in front of unbelievers here. He's speaking to the unbelieving rich, let me put it that way, in front of believers to encourage the believers that God's justice will prevail in the end. So if they find themselves as the oppressed, that God will eventually make all things right. And I think Calvin's thoughts are right. So what are we to make? What are we to glean from verses 1 through 6? I have three truths that I want us to think about and and then a point of application for each truth. And none of this is rocket science. So I hope this will, will be understandable for all of us today. First truth that I think we glean from verses 1 through 6 of James chapter 5. What we do with our stuff matters. What we do with our stuff matters. Look again at the imagery of the text that we just read. Start in verse 2 of James chapter 5. He says to these unbelieving rich, he says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Now let's pause there and just think about what's going on here. Just the the imagery is so poignant. He's saying, he's really, I think, expounding on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking, he's Jesus in in Matthew chapter five or six, he says, "Don't, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, years right later, is expounding on that, and he's, he's rebuking these unbelieving rich, and he's scolding them for, for doing the opposite of what Jesus said. They're, they're laying up for themselves riches that when they die, amount to nothing. And then verse 3 is actually one of those verses that people have talked about for, for, for centuries because he says that your gold and silver have corroded. And people have noted that gold and silver are two metals that actually don't corrode in rust. But James is saying here that they do. 
What is James saying? Is this an error in the inspiration of the Bible? No. It's, it's James, I think, making the spiritual point that even this, this precious metal that in a physical sense doesn't corrode, spiritually corrodes. And then, note what he says, that the corrosion, the uselessness of the things that you have sinfully hoarded for yourself will testify against you and it will these precious metals that have, that have corroded and rusted will eat your flesh like fire. I can't even picture that in my mind. You have gold and silver corroding, eating your flesh like fire is what he's saying. And then look at verse 5. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Again, he's speaking to these unbelieving Rich, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. He doesn't use the word cow there, but I think it's clear that he's referring to livestock. And I just have this picture of these cows. You think about cows. Cows. I, we live next to a cow pasture. And uh, although the owner of these cows, I don't think he, um, I don't think he, you, he, he raises them to eat. Uh, they're actually these Oreo cows. They're beautiful cows. They're black and white and black, and they, ha- they look like Oreo cookies. That's why they call them Oreo cows. But most people that have cattle, and I grew up out in California where there was cattle ranchers, and people would feed cows. And just think about how dumb a cow is, really. You, you just, they just eat. You just ring the bell, and they just come and they eat. And they don't know that the rancher has other intentions for the food that he's feeding them. He's wanting to fatten them up in the day of slaughter. And that's the picture that James is pointing us to here. That's the image, the, the stupidity of a beast of burden that when the bell rings is just walking to the trough, fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter, which I think is a clear illusion to judgment. And that's the picture of these unbelieving rich people who are hoarding themselves up, thinking that they're smarter than everybody else, fattening themselves with luxury and self-indulgence. They're no smarter than a dumb cow that walks to the trough, fattening himself or herself for the day of slaughter. What's the point of these verses? What are we to make of this? Uh, It's not friends, that riches and possessions are in and of themselves bad or evil or sinful. And let me just, I meant to mention this at the beginning. When we, anytime you talk about wealth or riches, there's just this natural tendency in all of us to sort of write ourselves out of these things. Oh, I'm so glad. Man, I wish this wasn't this pandemic social distance time when, we, when not everybody's attending because that person really needs to be here to listen to this message, right? That's the natural inclination of our hearts. Friends, all of us, this applies to all of us on some degree. And, 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 as, and as our brother John Calvin centuries ago said, that James is writing these things to the sinful, unbelieving rich as a kind of warning to all of the Christians. So all of the Bible applies to all of us. But the point here is not that we should conclude that it is necessarily a sin to have possessions or to have riches. They are not in and of themselves bad or evil or sinful. What James is rebuking here is the sinful 
idolatry of riches, the hoarding of these things, and the selfishness which they are prone to produce in our hearts. Wealth often is commended in the Bible. Listen to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. He says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So don't take from this that you know, your, your, your riches will rot when you die and you're, you're taken away to slaughter. Don't take from this that the point is, is that we should end with zero. Proverbs 13 says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Think wisely about the future. Paul commends riches in 1 Timothy 6. He says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and following, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus Storing up for story, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So praise God for the blessing that God gives some people to produce, to help, to employ, to build buildings, to pay for this church, all sorts of things. And the point that Paul is making here, which I think is in unison with what James would say, is that the, the, the sin is not in the possession, but it's in letting the possession possess you. That's what's going on. And so he says that these things will testify against you. There's a kind of courtroom scene. And the way, not just the sinfully unbelieving rich, but the way all of us handle our possessions will either authenticate, remember the theme of James, authentic faith. The theme, the, the point James is making is that our possessions will either authenticate or invalidate our faith on that day. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Pierced themselves with many pangs. The image I had when I read this verse and I was thinking about this passage, you know, when, when the, the, the terrible situation where maybe somebody would self-harm themselves, uh, maybe for, because of some emotional trauma. And we all feel a kind of sorrow and empathy for somebody that, that might be prone to do that. The picture here in 1 Timothy 6 is he's saying that's, what, that's the sorrow of the soul that is hoarding up for themselves riches. They are actually panging. They're piercing themselves with many pangs. So think about the, the confident, overbearing, presumptuous person who is possessed by their possessions, so unaware that they're, that they're fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter, is actually way more to be pitied than somebody who may be prone to harm themselves in an intentional way. They are piercing themselves with many pangs. What's an application to this truth before we hurry on? I think it's just as simple as this. Give away as much as you can. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. Just, I think this should be true of all Christians, regardless of how much we have. Seek to give away as much as you can while you're still being a good steward of your life and your responsibilities. 
I'm not talking about necessarily giving to the church. Yes, you should give to the church. This isn't what this message is about. I'm thinking about just the way that we in the Western world just have stuff. And I think the application is I look at my life and I look at James's rebuke as he's speaking to these people who are possessed by their possessions and he's wanting, unbe- he's wanting believers to hear his rebu- rebuke of unbelievers and I want it to chasten my own life and I want to look at my own life and I want this to produce in me a kind of lean living. To not be st- dominated by, by my possessions. And I thought about my own life. One of the best ways to neutralize the power of possessions is to hold on to them loosely, to be generous. And maybe some of us are just, this is in the Western world, start with our closets. Our closets. We have stuff. I have shirts that I wore in high school which was 31 years ago. Here's the challenge. We prefer a quick emotional response over slow, effective resolve. The point here is not for us to read this text, hear a sermon, feel kind of guilty about it, and do something to rid ourselves of our spiritual guilt so that in a few weeks we can get back to what we were doing. No, we should ask ourselves sort of deeper questions. What do I need to do? What, what ways, what patterns, what trajectories, what do I need to do differently in my life so that I am generous and I am not possessed by my possessions. How does that apply to your life? And I'm trusting that if you are a believer, I know the theological truth that the Spirit of God resides in us, and I'm trusting that God, who has promised to complete the work that He's began in each of us, will take this word from James, and the Spirit will do its work, and He will make application, and He will cut away flesh in our lives so that we will give away as much as we can and not be possessed by our stuff. Just one, one passage before we move on. I just, I don't want to be this guy that Jesus refers to in Luke chapter 12, and I fear this is, this is much of American culture. Luke 12, starting in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, speaking to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, I mean, think, of it, think about that question. Hey, you, teacher, come here. Dance, monkey, here's a quarter. I mean, just what the way these people approach Jesus, but don't we do the same? Verse 14, but he said to them, man, who made you a judge or arbiter? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And man, we are, we are discipled in the opposite direction. All of these TV shows, these real estate shows, these interior decorating shows, they, they're bad for my soul. They are. I look at them and I lust after other people's awesome looking stuff. I do. I don't know about you. Maybe this is just my therapy in front of all of my friends here. But we are discipled to covet, aren't we? And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Oh, I, I don't want to be that guy. Truth number two, God cares for the poor and oppressed. God cares for the poor and oppressed. I mean, I think that's obvious, but we need to remind ourselves of this biblical truth, and we need to apply it to our lives. So again, notice the imagery, the vivid imagery of the text. Look again at verses 4 and 6. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So again, he's, he's personifying an inanimate object. He, in the previous text, verse 2 and 3, it was the actual rich, it was the actual precious metals, gold and silver, that will actually eat us on the day of slaughter. And here in verse 4, it's the actual wages, which apparently these wealthy landowners have held back. They've cheated because they could. They've defrauded the day laborers. And James is saying here in verse 4 that the actual wages that are still in your pocket are that you've not given righteously to these people who deserved it. They are crying out against you. They're testifying against you. They are condemning the invalid nature of your faith. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In verse 6, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. I think that means a Christian. And what does he do? He does not resist you. I think what's going on here is a clear statement of God's care for the poor and oppressed. And here's, here's one of the shames. Here's, here's that I just feel this so, so acutely right now. Here's one of the shames of our current cultural climate. There are certain words, biblical words, that have become buzzwords that make people within the body of Christ suspicious of one another. What do you mean by oppressed? Are you advocating for a certain point of view? What do you mean by that? And the tragedy is, dear ones, while we rush to categorize one another and put each other in this theological camp or that theological camp or this political group or that political group, we are in grave danger of simply missing or even worse, ignoring the clear and plain point of the passage. And what's the point of the passage? God cares for and will someday promise, promises to someday avenge the poor and the oppressed, oppressed. And to be a follower of Christ means that we must have the same heart. The Old Testament is full of this reality. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, part of the law, verse 10. And the law we know has been fulfilled for us in Christ, but it becomes a kind of tutor. It becomes a kind of picture of the character of God. Deuteronomy 24, verse 10, when you make 
your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge, meaning if all he had to give you was his cloak, don't take it from him and sleep on the thing that he's given you as collateral. You shall not, verse 13, restore to him the pledge, or you shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. In other words, be gracious to this guy. Don't even go in his house. Don't dishonor him and own his space. Stand at his door and respect him. Verses 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. James certainly had Deuteronomy 24 in his mind. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 through 19. He, meaning God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Sojourners weren't just travelers. They were often poor and needy and vulnerable to oppression. And a clear implication of what it means to be part of God's people is to love people like that because that's who we were, all of us, spiritually before the Lord rescued us from our bondage. Friends, we, we know this, I think, instinctively, but we lose the force of these type of passages, and I think we're especially losing them in this cultural conversation where we are so fearful of sounding one way or the other or being labeled. Let's just let the Bible speak to us in its context, and let's seek to obey it. So here's an application for this point about how God cares for the poor and the oppressed. Just in my little life, an application, never take advantage of anyone and seek to protect the oppressed. Never take advantage of anyone and seek to protect the oppressed. Now, I know that's kind of a lofty statement. What, what does it actually look like in my life? Here's just a couple things I wrote down for myself. If we owe anybody money, pay it. <laughs> like if you're if you're, if you're holding out, if you're, if you're not paying your taxes, if you're not, and, I, and look, I got problems with the tax code too, but we live in a Romans 13 world. This is where we are. And it is, it is sin for a Christian to write their own laws and to write themselves out of the Babylon that they live in. This is where we are. If you owe anyone money, pay it. Another practical step that, that, that if I am working the system, and I know this might be kind of ambiguous, and I'm, just try, I'm, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to make direct application to each of our lives. If I am in some way working the system, whatever that system may be, in my favor, to the disadvantage of someone else, I need to repent from it and stop it. And I think that happens on varying levels all the time in human interaction. And I need to resist the thought, what can little old me really do? Oh, there's people around me. There's people that I know. There's people that I come in contact to. There's people that I can engage that just might need help. 
I think about a couple in this church who were at a Waffle House. I don't know, it's probably been a year or two now. And they came across this young woman who was in a, uh, uh, a distressful situation where she was pregnant and did, did not feel like she could keep the child and she was of a mind to abort this child. And this family in this church, just because they happened to be sitting in this booth at Waffle House where this young woman was a waitress, they shepherded her through months of her pregnancy, which eventually ended in uh, what we thought was going to be an adoption here, but eventually ended in her keeping that child, I think. Um, but the point is, is that child was born. Now, I know there's a whole, whole bunch of things that can happen in that situation, but that's just one example of just one average, ordinary person who just had their head on a swivel and just cared for somebody that was in front of them. You know, friends, resist, and this, this is again our... our, our our current cultural climate, and this is where these news channels are discipling you, and this is where little YouTube videos are discipling you. They are wanting you to have an opinion merely and to feel good about yourself because you think you are right theologically. Well, it's one thing to be right theologically. It's another thing to actually let that theology obey, cause you to obey God and produce in you a compassion to actually obey the theology that you confess. And, and, and what James 5 here is telling us is that as he is rebuking these sinful rich. Remember what Calvin said? He said, this is a kind of warning to the believers. Let this warn me that I need to be like the Lord and to care for the poor and the oppressed in small little ways in my life. We have people in this room that are doing that in spades and praise God for it. If we're not doing that, if that's you, ask the Lord to stir in you a kind of awareness and a kind of small, ordinary action to where you can follow God's heart to care for the poor and the oppressed. And just resist, and one final thought, resist this thought, and this is, this is going to sound a little defensive, I admit it, so I'm just throwing it out there, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I think it is helpful pastorally, and you can get mad at me later, and we'll still love each other, Okay? resist, resist the thought, well, what is the church doing about that? What do y'all, what do y'all, you know, people are like, it's funny, pronouns, you know, pronouns, I, I, I listen to pronouns, even like members of, what are y'all, what are y'all doing about that? <laughs> I, I, what, you know, sometimes I want to say, well, what are you doing about that? And, but I, I I'm, I'm maturing, and I, I later on, I'm, don't, don't sort of rest in scorn and scold. Don't shame other people. Don't shame systems. Don't shame the church global. Don't shame the church national. Don't shame the church local, local and be frustrated and bounce around from church to church looking for these, this group of people. Oh, this, oh, come on, come on, stop it. Am I speaking to anybody here? Or is this you? I mean, I know there's not that many of us here, and you guys need to help me more. Give me a north-south or an amen every now and again. We're coming to the end. But just, just resist the temptation to, to think that, you know, if they would do a better job, then I could plug in to be all that God has intended me to be.
Well, let's finish. Point number three, truth number three. Judgment is coming for all of us. Judgment is coming for all of us. Just look at this text. It's, it's full, it's full of, of admonitions. It's full of warnings about this day when we will all stand before the Lord. Look, look here, it says the miseries that are coming upon you. It's speaking about this corrosion of these, these, these possessions that you have that will be evidence against you. Against you on what, what day? It's this final day of, of judgment. He, he's saying don't lay up for yourself treasure in these last days. The cries of these, of these harvesters, these wages that you've withheld will testify against you. You're fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. The implication clearly is that this woe is coming upon these people for the way that they have treated fellow image bearers of God. I think this is a clear statement, a clear reminder for all of us that judgment is coming for all. And so the application, friends, as we end is remember, remember and trust in Christ alone today. Remember and trust. Cling to Christ. Cling to the gospel for your right standing with God. Robert read for us at the beginning that, the, that, the, that, that we should not boast in our riches and our wisdom, wisdom, but we should boast in the Lord. And as we see this rebuke that I think James intends for believers to overhear as he's rebuking the sinfully unbelieving selfish rich, it's a kind of warning to us, a warning to us as we live in this world and we are daily polluted with the spiritual filth of this world to not have our hearts drawn away to trust in these things or be satisfied in the things that we have accomplished because there's coming a day when we will all stand before the Lord and what will be our plea then? It can and must only be Christ. Listen to Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. I love that word, remember, because Paul is, is admitting, he's knowing that Timothy needs to remember it. I think Paul knows that we all suffer. I know I mention this often, that we all suffer from gospel amnesia. And Paul is telling this young pastor, Timothy, to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Remember the gospel as preached in my gospel. Verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The challenge of sanctification in the true Christian's life is to not know the gospel and then move on to the other parts of life, but to go deeper into the gospel, to remind yourself of it daily, and to believe and cherish and cling to the gospel deeper and more tightly as each day goes by. And this is the good news of the gospel, that all of us will stand before a holy creator God whom we have all offended. And on that day, what will be our plea for the unbeliever who's been possessed 
by his possessions, he will find on that day that he has nothing to commend himself. Even the good works that he may have done with his riches will rot away because they were not tethered to, they are not based on, they were not an act of worship in trusting in Christ alone. They will perish, they will be gone, and he will be separated from God forever. But the believer, the person who knows that they are a sinner and that there's nothing good that they can bring will know on that day because God has given them a new heart. He's given them faith and they will trust in the fact that the only reason they can draw near to a holy God is because God the Son, God in the flesh came, lived a perfect life where we have all disobeyed him, where we have all lived in sin Christ came and lived a sinless life and took the punishment. God the Son in the flesh, truly man, truly God, bears the punishment, the wrath of God the Father for all those that will trust in him. And then rises again in victory. And because he is the victor, because he has the keys of life, he gives life to all that the Father has given to him. He gives them a new heart. He makes them alive. And even though he saves them in that moment, he leaves them in the filth of this earth to be a kind of showcase for his grace, to hold tightly to the gospel, to remember him, to be used by him as a witness to the lost world so that he might draw others to himself and give them new hearts. And that person will stand before God on that day. And whether they have nothing in the world's eyes or whether they have great riches, they will know on that day that the only hope they have is not in this or that or this account or that account. It is in Christ. It is in him and what he has done in his death and resurrection and victory on the cross. And friends, the great challenge of being a Western American Christian is that we live in a culture. You see, I think it's possible to be really astute biblically, to really know a lot of your Bible, and to just be sucked out to sea by the riptide of our culture. And this is a word to us. The thing is, it's a word to the rich, but it's a word to the poor who are scornful of the rich. Because their scorn of the rich is the desire for the riches that they don't have. They're, just, they're being dragged along in the same undercurrent, the same riptide, they're being dragged along by the same desire. Remember Jesus Christ. There's coming a judgment, and we will all be judged. And those who are trusting in their riches will burn. They will be eaten up. The stuff that they trusted in will actually eat them alive. What does that even mean? I don't know, but it sounds terrible. But the judgment that comes on a Christian, God will pour out, he has poured out his wrath on Christ and he will will say to them, come to me, come to me. We have been judged if we're in Christ, but Christ took it all. And that is where our hope must be. Let me pray. Lord, there's a lot in my life that needs to change. I'm so prone. I need this gospel. I need this. 
Lord, give, me, give us wisdom. Give us maturity. You, you, you give us all things richly to enjoy, Timothy says. Paul says to Timothy. The application here is not necessarily a vow to poverty. It's to not be possessed by our possessions. And to be the, the biblical type of believer who, whose hands have a loose grip on this world, who has ambition to achieve and to do great things for God, but whatever, whatever, you're, whatever you're calling for us in life, to have little or to have much, is to see our lives as a conduit of our situation whereby everything that you've given us, whether it's hardship or riches, is a reflection of how we prefer the pearl of great price, which is Christ and nothing in this world. So Lord, teach us this. Teach us this. Wean us from our lusts and make us generous. <laughs> make us people that protect the oppressed. Guard our hearts from silly, intramural shots that we take at each other. And let us just obey this verse. Let's strive to obey this verse. And let us remember Jesus Christ. Help me with this, Lord. Help me with this. I, I, I'm the chief amnesia sufferer here. And help my brothers and sisters with it as well. And I pray that you do all this, Lord, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.